do have a sound guy named Brian who abandoned me last night to fuck somebody. So um, <laughs> he does the editing and he can fix this, you know, assuming that he feels like doing his job. Right, so if LA you do make some noise. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know. I guess I know where uh, <sighs> I rank. <laughs> the mic, you want to be pretty close to it. Right about here. Yeah, sound check again. Check, check, check. All right. Anyway, yeah, I wish I had a different producer, but I used to have a fancy studio that he mm-hmm. snuck me into at night where oh, he worked. Nice. It was like voiceover for something, but then he got a fancy podcast. Um, oh, from getting producer the job from yeah. This, so then I don't have a studio to record. I'm recording on TV trays in my room and not Brian's house because Brian only cares about getting pussy. Anyway, if, if you want a sound guy, you need him with no desire for achievement and completely asexual. Asexual. Absolutely. Yes. Less ambitious. In Less. my defense, he did not seem ambitious when we met <laughs> on Tinder. Um, <laughs> I'm never going to find love, but man, have I found a lot of business associates. Oh, yeah. All right, welcome to Soberish, the I Did Way Too Many Readings Today podcast. My brain is fried. I'm going to need you to carry this podcast. My is that legs okay? are ready. Yes, I'm All right. ready. This to is Dan Donahue. How is it, everybody? This is very exciting. We're going to talk to a spiritual person today. I had this funny gag in my head where I would straight faced say, let's get spiritual. <laughs> But uh, like, there's no way I could say it with a straight face. But I was like practicing the other day because I was like, dude, if I can say that straight to his face, I think it's so funny. <laughs> I think if I, <laughs> I have to be able to do that. But I was like, I'm going to be able to do that when he gets here. I don't know how it would react. I think it would be somewhere along the lines of like, man, this was a, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> we should have met at a neutral location, not at this person's house. <laughs> Depending on how long you maintained eye contact. If it was over three seconds, I might be at the door. Oh, God. I had it in my head. In my head, it was so funny. I was going to be like, all right, let's get spiritual and then just see what you do. God, it would be so great. Uh, Fuck. Man, the double finger. If I could have done that on Ramin. Oh, God damn it. Yeah, I'll never never pull it off, though. Acting is a curse. Never learn it. No. There's no way. It's mm-hmm. too it's too cringy. I said it like three times in the episode I recorded by myself right. last night, and I still could barely say it. It's so awful. I'm sure somebody says it somewhere on a podcast, but we are going to get kind <laughs> of, you know, whatever the cool version of spiritual is. Let's get spiritual, baby. All right. What are you into? So I got way into like past life stuff very recently. I've dabbled into learning about other kind of esoteric forms of spirituality, like Tantra and that sort of thing. That's that, fucking. Yeah. For those of you that it, is, it is. It is. Like I'm, I knew a girl who was super into it. So I was like, I'm going to learn. This sounds <laughs> sweet. And then she just ended up being a homophobe, which was just like. <laughs> 
<laughs> like through Tantra. Because she, she kept talking about like, oh, it's about the merging of the masculine and the feminine energy. Like that's what it's all about. It, yeah. Like when you go deeper than fucking, it's like, oh, it's all about the interplay of masculine and feminine, masculine and feminine. And I was like. Which gay people pretty much have on lock. But, 100%. Yeah. No, it's, but I, I had the thought like, I went gone a few days ago and I was like, wait a minute. So what about gay people? And she was like, I don't really like talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We have to find new ways to be bigots. It's insane. I know. I thought I was safe in the world I got into where yeah. I was like, oh no, they'll find their way. Holy shit. Nature finds a way and so do bigots. Today, I found out that butthole sunning is a thing. That's an actual thing. I saw a joke meme oh, like months ago, mm-hmm. but then today someone sent me 100% you're aware. That, oh, yeah. That butthole sunning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. You, Do, no. Yeah, I thought that I, was a joke. No, butthole sunning is huge. Sun gazing. You know about sun gazing, Yeah, right? I burnt my uh, macula. No, I stared at the sun for four hours in Pioneer Courthouse Square. Whoa. In 2001 or two. What time of day are we talking? Midday. Not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> not... Yeah, not at all how it works. Sun gazing, Whoa. I do actually think. Like, I, I feel like I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't be an advocate of a lot of things that I got literally burned with. Sure. But even I stared at the midday sun for four hours, and I have my blind spots are covering, like, your pupils right now. Right. No one can say you're not dedicated. Right. Exactly. Four hours. Even the do- all the doctors that have looked at my eyes are like... You're dedicated. Yeah. They're like, well, actually, you're. it's a miracle that yeah. you're not blind. You're but. suffering from terminal dedication right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like this was a combination of a lot of things. But one of them was when you get into conspiracy theories, which is why I don't encourage this in people. Like, of course, we're being lied to. But I don't encor- encourage people to go too far down that rabbit hole because then everything starts to feel like a lie. And I just was on this everything we've ever been told was a lie. And what's one of the first things they tell you? Not to look at the sun <laughs> or drink your pee. And so. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm actually into the drinking your pee thing. Really? Very famous uh, mixed martial artist, Loyota Machida, one of my childhood hero athletes. It came out mid, like, I was 10 when this came out. So that just prime, I'll do whatever I hear kind of age. Yeah. And it say, it was, he said, like, came out in an interview and was like, yeah, I drink my pee every morning because it's very healthy for me. Interesting. Yeah. And then I got, I was like, oh, this might be the thing. I, I fell off of it. But for, listen, ages 10 and 11, I might have dabbled. Might have dabbled. I might have dabbled. Me as well. I was a little bit older, but um, (laughs) when I was doing research for burning my macula, uh, I did see the instructions of how to to look at the sun appropriately, and uh, it's like in the morning and not very long and kind of not directly, but I think the the idea behind it was... um, the serotonin and melatonin regulation in your body comes from your exposure to the sun and it's the sun coming to your eyes. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like the the core of your like metabolic cycles right. comes from like sunlight. That's a, a yeah. huge portion of it. Yeah. So it makes sense in that way. Yeah, it does. I do I do think sun gazing. I do think getting sun uh, affects my mood. I notice that 
Like, I can't live somewhere that's not. I'll just have to stay in California forever because I'm so weather affected. But uh, and then the pee drinking. Anyway, I was trying to see behind the sun. I, sure. I had a theory. Because <laughs> okay. okay. like, what's something that they tell you? They tell everybody, right? Don't look at the sun. I'm like, this is the first <laughs> lie we're told, right? So obviously there's something back there. Right. So uh, it's crazy what your body does trying not to look at the sun, though. It's your body rejects it. Your entire body is like oh, I can imagine. Know, I just like snot pouring down my face, and I was having to like <laughs> clockwork orange my eyes open. I like how you chose a path that made people who like gaze at the sun regularly go like, "All yeah. right, well, <laughs> <laughs> listen, easy." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I have a tendency to do that. Um, and then piss drinking, I was researching before mm-hmm. piss drinking, and um, I don't know how much of this is science or insane, because I do know there was a lot of calling it sterile thrown around, which I've oh, yeah. since heard isn't. Which I uh, think it depends on the person. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming out of something that's not sterile, for sure. At the minimum, right. you know what I mean? It right, was, but right. You, yeah. I can't imagine having, like, you know, everybody's, regardless of the genitalia, comes out with, yeah. oh, no, but the piss is <laughs> crystal clear. <laughs> I mean, unless you're, like, alcohol swabbing the area yeah. first, like, it's not. It's right, not. right. There's it's something not. going on. Yeah. So, um, what I read about what piss is, is is a byproduct that all of your waste goes into your feces and then piss is just the byproduct. This is these are the things you tell yourself before you drink it. <laughs> piss is the byproduct. This is a very spiritual podcast, by the way. Piss mm-hmm. is the byproduct of blood production. And so what your pee is is all of the excess vitamins that your because your body has the exact amount that it needs at the time. So if you were to take a vitamin, that's why you pee so much of it out. Not that your body wouldn't absorb that over the course of a few hours, but because right in that moment it was saturated, it, it, it got rid of the rest of it. Also, I read that it cures AIDS, uh, <laughs> which I think they would have figured out by now if that was true. But the idea was that AIDS changes so fast. Right. And that your body creates antibodies. Mm, okay. <laughs> right? This is really bad science now. Um. <laughs> I cut a lot out of the podcast, by the way. So. <laughs> Not this part, yeah. please. <laughs> um, I just want to say that uh, the beliefs of other piss drinkers are are not representative of no, those of us here. At, the good, strong, hardworking piss drinkers yeah. out there. Anyway, it does have meth in it, if you did meth. But other than that, I can't. I, I didn't really notice a lot of health benefits. That'd be a good way to start, Matt, to start with someone's pee and be like, do I like this? Yeah. I got, you know, like I accidentally did meth because I thought it was Coke. So I wonder if someone Um, was like, I was just drinking this girl's (laughs) pee. She didn't tell me there was meth in it. I asked her for a cup of yellow. Listen, I was into this wholesome experience (laughs) of drinking a sober woman's urine. And what did I find out? Tainted by the devil. Uh, All right. Let's get spiritual. Hell yeah. Past lives. All mm-hmm. right, so you got into it recently. Got into it recently. So uh, I, I, I always kind of dabbled in the idea of like, I, I always had the internal belief that there were past lives and there was like a kind of confluence of spiritual activity that happens after you die. And I never really dug into it. And then 
uh, about like two years ago, my dad passed away, and I was like, well, let's just dive into this. I get a year to be crazy. Yeah. Let's just go for use this it, one. Yeah. yeah, use it. Yeah, you have a free ticket to whatever you want. So I was like, let's get into this. And I read a bunch of books that sort of reinforced my idea of like there being sort of this, a reason why every single mode of spirituality and any, every kind of religious practice has some sort of relation to either afterlife or like karmic retribution or something like that. And it's like, there has to be some sort of reason why these seemingly disconnected ideologies all have this thing in common, which is the idea of a soul or a spirit carrying through. Right. So I, I started reading a few books and the two that really tapped me, uh, one was uh, uh, Proof of God, which is a very fun title for a book. Interesting. And it's basically the idea that this uh, doctor got uh, bacterial meningitis and it completely destroyed like the first layer of his brain, but the substructure of his brain maintained, which means he shouldn't have been able to like picture anything, but he had this crazy psychedelic experience. And what came from that was his theory, which I now completely believe, which is that the brain, rather than being this thing that we see it as, which is like a creation tool, which is like, oh, my, my brain is creating my experience, you should actually view it more as like a funnel. So there's this sort of like endless stream of sensory data, and it's way too big for any one person to kind of take in all at once. Yeah. So what the brain acts as is like a channel, so it takes just a small little piece of that stream, puts it in a kind of digestible way so like it, it allows us to kind of process it down to something where we can live and experience so when you die the reason why people have these crazy experiences including near-death experiences is because that funnel kind of breaks open and we take in much more of that sensory dead than we're used to oh shit yeah so that's the kind of thing that i got on and then after that I, I've sort of just kind of been seeing everything through that lens, and it's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Does he speak about uh, the potential for humanity starting to break the funnel wall? Yeah, absolutely, like, yeah. I alive? Think, I think that that's one of the, like, every, the, so when I say I, I'm seeing the world through that context, whenever I hear someone say, like, oh, I had a psychedelic experience or I had a breakthrough meditating, that's the way that I see it, where it's like, oh, a little, like, that funnel sort of has expanded in a way. Yeah. Because once it completely breaks open, I mean, I think that that's just death, where your soul completely leaves your body. Right. And then there's a whole other thing that happens after that that we can get into later, but it's like... Right now, when, when people talk about having similar experiences with near death, I think that's what it is. I think it's just like the funneling mechanism that we think is reality is sort of just being like broken apart and disintegrated and we get a much bigger stream of sensory data than we're used to. Interesting. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about, um, I had, uh, I, I feel like this line between mysticism and science mm. is getting smaller and smaller Wait. and smaller. And a lot of things... <laughs> this is the alarm that I set for 9.06 a.m. Mm -hmm. that did not go off because uh, I apparently set it for 9.06 p.m. Killing it. I need a personal mm -hmm. assistant to help with my... Alarms. That science getting in the way of mysticism right there. God damn it. Mm. Damn right it is. 
I think this line is getting, uh, or you know, the the barrier between the two is getting smaller and smaller. A lot of my mystical experiences, I think, are just energy. I see, and is this because I damaged my macula? Who knows? But I see, I guess, what everybody else sees on psychedelics constantly. So if I just stare up at the ceiling within a few minutes, I can see all of the grid work and all of the energy, and you know, I can see auras and and you know ghosts and aliens and whatever like I just barely rest my eyes and I can see all of this stuff and this is something I've been able to see for years probably after blowing my uh normal brain function with lots of drugs but now everyone like everyone's an exaggeration a lot of people are starting to see this stuff and I've read things like you know there's only so much light that our eyes can see, but if we are going through some type of collective awakening or some uh, like climbing into higher dimensions, that it makes perfect sense that our eyes are just like we're getting more senses. Yeah. And that that's not that mystical. The thing like connecting to each other telepathically and everything isn't that crazy spiritual woo woo if you really think of it from like a uh, if consciousness is all connected. By yeah. something energetically. It's almost frustrating because you hear like the the beginning stages of sort of the merging between whatever you would call mysticism and science where people are like, oh, well, mirror neurons can be like the beginning stages of understanding what telepathy is. Yeah. But it's really frustrating because then people will come back and be like, well, that's such a minuscule thing and it doesn't account for all. The-. And it's like, well, yeah, this is the like start of it. Yeah, like, this is the exactly. first thing. And I think time proves that once you go on, it, the the coming together of those two things, it doesn't only, like, seem relevant. It makes perfect sense when you think of human beings in general and why it seems like so many people relate to spiritual experiences and mystical experiences. Right. Not just, like, people who are, you know, in a tent up in Santa Monica or whatever. It's like... Normal people, when posed with super normal experiences, whether it be near death or they take psychedelics or what have you, like we're all subjective to it. And we're just, there's just such a thin film separating even the most like hardcore normie person right. from having to deal with this reality. But we just keep that barrier up for as long as we can until we have to deal with it for the most part. Yeah. Well, and it sucks that so much of spirituality got associated with religion and religion sure. is so much more mainstream 3d bullshit than yeah. spirituality it's like spirituality was the carrot to lure you in there and then it was as much rules and bullshit and telling you to look outside of yourself for the answer and then it's people brokering your relationship with god which is the opposite of actual spirituality that is such a, the carrot that lead you in is that's such a good analogy for that because it for me it's like they found something like beautiful like in the beginning of the development of religions specifically like abrahamic religions which i think are the most popular example yeah. of that where it's like oh here's like a beautiful undeniably human thing how do we kill it yeah. like what do we do what could we do to possibly make this worse let's put a huge power structure around it let's make it so people need to go through extremely specific channels to get to it Mm -hmm. which is like whatever the deacons and priests and all that which by the way gives them as is shown by history a horrible power complex which 
no one that's because no one's supposed to have that even with some like gurus and shamans it's shown that there is a certain level of power that will no matter what corrupt someone but we keep making these systems around spiritual experience that makes you go through these people and it's just a complete path to destruction yeah i i can't tell if it's a like a nefarious plot or just regular old um human error that created this like um i think it's gnosticism and this is like the one thing i know about gnosticism says that there are three levels of spiritual development i'm probably butchering this but it is hyletics which is just brand new souls they don't know shit yet uh psychic disciplinarians which they start to sense that there is something beyond themselves but they only know how to apply man's rules to it so they just cripple it with you know rules and regulations and and dichotomy and then pneumatic souls which are people who have evolved to the point that they know that they are god oh yeah and so i don't know if religion is just you can't hand you can't hand higher truth to people who are asleep because they will just they will experience like i think back to the bible which when i went through my awakening and spent a lot of time with aliens I was a I thought I was a backslidden Christian so I was constantly asking questions about the Bible and they explained that uh a lot of us kind of unpacking from one consciousness into a million separate consciousnesses was something called the dispersion project and a lot of stuff that we twist up from the Bible was just kind of like uh, our higher consciousness instructing us to go out and breed and make a bunch of bodies to be in and um then uh they passed, there were a certain amount of people awake, and a lot of the Bible was people who were awake, Jesus and the, the apostles and whatever, were awake, and so they would just pass this information down. But then when you give it to people who are asleep, they feel that it's real, but they don't know what to do with it. Right. They can only focus on the rules because they're looking outside of themselves for an answer. They can't fathom God being in them. And worse than that, I think that there's a high level of... Uh, I call it like ego hijacking when it comes to that sort of thing. Yeah. Where when you're given this, the more incredible and the more substantial a spiritual device is given to someone who doesn't have the tools to deal with it, yeah. the more likely that the ego of them, which has not, for those people, has not been quelled in any way, has not been under even understood by them to exist in any way, it's going to take power because that's what the ego do. It latches on to the most powerful, substantial things in our lives, and it turns them against us. Yeah. So a, a huge part of that, and it's funny when you say, like, those the hierarchy of, of spirits and Gnosticism, you can, you can like, create different kind of hierarchies with, with anything, but I think that there's a lot to be said about hierarchies within, like, living humans' developments also, where you have people where you can give them that kind of spiritual information and they completely readily understand it and they're experiencing it as whatever, like, current reality is for them. And then there's people who will filter it through that ego process uh -huh. and completely destroy it. We call those the fake awakes here on the Soberish podcast. Oh, oh there's a word for yeah, it? Yeah. Uh, I call them fake awakes or the love and light crew, which is not uh, <laughs> not a compliment. It sounds like one. <laughs> the toxically positive right. uh, who cannot handle... Uh, one moment of authenticity in the middle of posting memes about authenticity. But uh, yeah, there is something about getting a hold of spiritual language before 
the work has done, you know, and it's not like a judgment, um, a value judgment. I think we all end up in the same place and everybody is playing whatever path they chose to get there. And, uh, you know, some of them, um, you know, whatever, make me sick, but like eventually I don't get, we're all one, you know, but, um, it is really interesting. Our relationship. I read, there was this fucking kooky, uh, website that I ended up paying for at one point just because I needed to look at it so bad. It was some type of institute. <laughs> That's porn for on, you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, I just got to pay to see this yeah, institute. <laughs> I got to get certified in this. But it was based on reality being a simulation. Yeah. And it was a really um, inter. So that's the kind of stuff I Google because I get like Nikes, like Air Force One ads and uh, <laughs> boobs. And then, um, you know, Institute. Fuck, what was that place called? I can't believe it was constant. And then it went away, which is kind of sketchy. I forget what it's called. Something Institute of something. And it was teaching you how to break out of the matrix, basically. Oh, but wow. it was quite literally presenting reality as a simulation, which is kind of a joke I make a lot. It's this kind of a simulation, but I don't think we're trapped in a computer. I think we're playing a game willingly. But um, it said that we have error-correcting code in us that would immediately reject the idea of being in a computer simulation until very recently, uh, that it was like uh, that code expired, and that that's why we had to try to communicate our what was truly happening to us through the metaphor of religion um because it was kind of a way to bypass that code oh so like religion is our sort of way of circumventing having to deal with that like we can't i could if i said to you we are living in a computer simulation you were programmed to immediately reject that idea interesting and so the only way to communicate to you that something else is happening to us would be to use the allegory of religion yeah that makes sense i mean that kind of gets into the idea of using our own archetypal structures that exist in our brains to like distill those sorts of ideas and that's where you get into the idea of like the reason why different religions have the same symbolism is because everybody has the same hierarchies within them that just kind of need to, like you said, it's like a computer program where it just needs to kind of be activated. And we just go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like right there. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, as if we have all of these different archetypes in our head. Yeah. Like existing in our head. Yeah. So this is a really fun like idea that sort of i mean it's sort of in the joseph campbell carl carl young kind of ideology but it goes a little bit deeper than that where it's like we have these pre-existing structures of knowledge in our brain in the same way that a lot of people not to completely bring it back to the near-death experience thing but it's like people experience very similar stages a lot of the time in near death experiences in the same way that we experience uh these sorts of religious experiences in archetypal form. So say you have the idea of a godhead and the idea of a son that falls and then is resurrected. Like, that's a very simple idea. Shit, okay. That plays over and over again in many different religions. Now, a lot of people can say that there's a reason for that and you're kind of extrapolating on certain religions for that, but I think that it makes a little more sense for... There is possibly that structure is naturally in kind of the matrix of our minds. And that's why it gets tapped on so often throughout history. And it keeps, it's like a catchy song that kind of keeps playing and playing over and over again in humanity. 
Interesting. Fuck, I got to think about that. Uh, I've been obsessed, and by obsessed, I mean I read one page of a book about it. <laughs> but this idea that there are many of us in our minds, right? Sure. That there, that the something that keeps us stuck is this idea that all of our thoughts are one stream of consciousness, rather than this is a fractured piece of myself. This is my mother's voice. This is my critic. This is my ego. And even after like dealing with the ego. You know, I still had this idea that there was my higher self and my ego. And through the last couple of years, I don't know if you were in a pressure cooker of hell like uh, many of us were, but I um, got very triggered. A lot of childhood trauma stuff came up, a lot of stuff I was working through. And this idea, once again, that there's like nine different me's inside my head. And um, I learned about something called internal family systems, which is a type of therapy where they address all the different parts of you. In my mind, it feels like, I guess the movie Inside Out, I haven't seen that, but there feels like there's a control panel and it controls my mouth. And there are different versions of myself. And, and at one point, I got very codependently activated and uh, my like attachment system was, was going nuts. I was just in a difficult relationship. And I would, there were like moments where I caught myself uh, almost like, my inner child felt connected to this person, but then there were parts of me that were like, this is too dangerous. And so I had like moments where I like actually experienced, obviously I, I spent a lot of time looking at things in the ether, but in the ether I actually experienced, uh, we came into contact for the first time in a while and I felt like my myself, my innocent self that doesn't want to hurt anybody and isn't afraid, like running towards this person and then just felt another part of myself just like knock her down to the ground. And you know what's crazy with that and the next level of deepness is that that inner child wasn't it's possible that wasn't necessarily attracted to all of that person, yeah. but it was attracted maybe to that person's inner child yeah. or even more confusingly, it could be like that person's ego or that, but like there's so many different sliding like parts of ourselves that are grooving within other parts of other people. Cause everybody's so fragmented in that way. Right. So it's so hard to kind of get a grip on it and be like, Oh no, this part of me is attracted to this part of me, but this part of me is at war with this other part of me. Yeah. Which is so weird when we talk in terms of like, oh, I'm in a fight with this person. Because that's such a weird idea when you think of things in that terms. Because it's like, oh, no, a part of me is in a fight with that person, but these other parts of me are still like, oh, no, they're still cool. Like, whatever. Yeah. God, it's so fucking confusing. And it like, I learned a lot about it. This is uh, what uh, we call twin flame relationships in the uh, spiritual community, although they seem to be like glamorized as something like some magic soulmate relationship. This is basically someone who's got somehow some type of like blueprint that will uh, activate the ever living fuck out of all of your defense mechanisms and you get to deal with all of the uh, bad programming. But it's essentially, you ever seen that thing from Burning Man where it's two people facing away from each right. other, but their inner children are, this, that's exactly what it was. It's like every defense mechanism that we had, every fear and insecurity and ego and everything else were in complete opposition with each other. But that like innocent child part of us felt like, you know, perfect counterparts. But in that, the the character that would would do damage, I called Aubrey Plaza, which is weird. <laughs> um, I hope she never finds out. But the in, all through Mormon and the Meth Head is just me talking about, and then Aubrey Plaza showed up. 
And that is because there's a character in a show called Legion. Have you ever seen Legion? Yeah. The character that she plays. Like, that's oh. how she acts. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I think everybody's got an Aubrey Plaza. Everyone has an Aubrey Plaza. <laughs> I have many different uh, different aspects. I, codependency ended up being its own. Codependency ended up being like active addiction by the time I realized what it was because I like to be alone, so I never thought I was codependent. Interesting. Um, I don't think I knew what codependency was, but... Uh, my anxious attachment system turned into just a complete like love addiction, and it was like just just f- fucked. So was was codependency for you like the feeling as though you would find somebody and then be like, I have to completely attach myself to them, and like it, I, my survival depends on them. So that's what I thought codependency meant, which yeah. is why I didn't think I had it. Yeah, I'm someone yeah. who likes to be alone, even when I I had just been in a ten year marriage that I thought was great. It was fine, but I think uh, I think he was just the kind of person that goes well with a codependent. So uh, codependency is a secret low self-esteem. They call it self-love deficit disorder or something now, which is a little more accurate. But um, it's secret low self-esteem. It's a need to prove your worth. It then turns into like, like you kind of take over the person's life and... You try to like maintain control. It's like an for me, it was like an extension of an anxious attachment system that I also right. didn't know I have because I'm pretty um, detach. Anyone that knows like is tries to be close to me would tell you that I don't attach well. But a few times in a lifetime, I fall in love, and which is not easy. And when I fall in love, it's this other thing shows up. I don't I don't feel safe, and so I try to control uh, my environment, and I try to control my environment by proving my worth and so but then this turns into this constant like let me make all your dreams come true let me fix all your problems for you and it turns it's like overbearing and it's i'm a little bit slick at it but it's it's um but then it, it it manifests all this preoccupation with my safety and whether or not i'm wanted and uh it was a shit ton of anxiety and depression and i was having like physical, we had a podcast together and then we would, we lived in different States. And so that I was having these like physical symptoms when he was gone, I was sick all the time. And, uh, I couldn't, it got to the point where I couldn't tell if where I stood, but my mind was 24 seven trying to figure out where I stand. So compulsively checking social media of a person who doesn't post social media, like jealousy, which I'm like very, not that type of person. None of it matched who I am. Right. And so, uh, or any of my philosophies, you know, when we first met, I was like, I think I want five boyfriends and girlfriends and, you know, Mm -hmm. I think monogamy's out and, you know, and then I just got rejected. And then like when he was like, you know, or maybe I got triggered and, um, but yeah, the, the main markers of codependency is trying to prove your worth by solving someone else's problems and um, concerning yourself with them. So it's a complete like self-sacrifice and prioritizing myself with their needs. And uh, two other times I could figure out that that happened because it was like an active addiction. And I could never, like, I quit drugs because I just felt, I just was like, man, I quit mm-hmm. smoking cigarettes on my first shot. Was that the feeling when you quit drugs? Uh-huh. You were just like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I was like, oh, I'll just quit. This is going to be stupid. That's so crazy. After six years of doing math, yeah. Oh, my God. That uh, rules. Cigarettes, I, I said on June 9th that I'll smoke my last cigarette on July 17th, and I smoked my last cigarette on July 17th. I have a picture with it. And then I just <laughs> was, I never smoked another cigarette. 
I, it looks like I smoke in all my photo shoots. That's the interesting so thing. Cool. Like when you get older, you, you get told this narrative of like, oh, people who do drugs are, they have like low wills or whatever. Yeah. And people who do, who don't do drugs have high wills. And then you get, get older and you're like, oh, these people who don't do drugs are just as crazy, if not crazier. Yeah. They didn't even have a period of doing, like that's crazy. It is weird to talk to people who have never seen their darkness. It yeah. is a different thing. I had this conversation um, when this podcast was about addiction for three episodes. And uh, I, I tend to gravitate. I don't identify as an addict necessarily. I definitely, with this codependency, felt like I experienced Interesting. Yeah. I, I wanted to stop something that I couldn't stop. Mm. It was the first time I felt like that. I guess I felt like that about food at different points. But yeah, I there, there's something about people who have seen their darkest moment, like seen what they're capable of. Right. They're just uh, makes them less judgmental. I don't know, more humble. I think anyone that that's why people are so naturally attracted to the charisma of people who do extreme things. That's true. No matter what, like it, it doesn't even have to be that. It's like people are so naturally attracted to athletes in the same way that they're attracted to rock stars and say, and all of those people, like the only similarity when you look at all of them is that their social capital is essentially the fact that they're willing to do something and go to levels that other people just aren't. That's a good point. And they've seen part and through that we don't maybe we don't make this logical connection but what what's happening in our brains is like we see them and we go they're understanding parts of their substructure as a human being that we haven't tapped on yet and the mystery of that and the mystique and the allure of that is kind of what keeps us going to those people. Interesting. Who was I talking to about sports and envy? Oh, that's a great combination of topics. Yeah. Yeah. Just our relationship with people who can do amazing things. Because I feel like it's, it's, uh, it's inspiring, right? To see people like break records. Oh, Natalie Gray said on the podcast that you would never be envious, that you're only envious of things that you could accomplish. Interesting. Yeah. I, that's true in a way, yeah, because I think that the most bitter people who watch sports are definitely, like, ex-athletes. Yeah. Oh, fuck, that's a really good point. Yeah, but... Because I was like, there are people that are definitely couldn't do that, who sure. act like that, but she, her example was, like, comedians. You know, a comedian sees another comedian get a special, and they're like, what the fuck? But, you know, they're not mad that somebody's winning an NBA championship. There, There's, like, two sides of that, because I, I think in, the, in terms of jealousy, where it's like, if... If someone breaks up with me and they go out with someone who's similar to me, I'm way less threatened. But when someone breaks up with me and they go with someone like, like if so, they broke up with me, they went with a guy who does like banking rather than comedy. I would be like, <laughs> fuck, I don't even get that. <laughs> God damn it. Do you want them to be hotter than you or less hot? That's a very good question. I want them to be as hot as me, but in a very different way. Interesting. You know I want I mean? hotter than me, but not the personality, not as good of a personality. Yeah. Which yeah. I guess is just everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want the most likely scenario. Right. <laughs> Listen, that's the key to happiness. <laughs> Do you get jealous or uh, envious of comedians getting things that you think you should get? That's one thing that. I I like sometimes I'll feel a tinge of disappointment when someone gets something just because 
I feel like their stuff isn't like if I know there's other people with cooler stuff that aren't getting anything, then I get a little upset. But it's never personal for me. I would say if it was like I'm very yeah. open about being like envy. But yeah, that's one thing where I'm just like, I, I just think comedy is good in general. So I'm just happy when comedy gets like any sort of spotlight. Yeah. But they, I, that's not to say there haven't been people who've made it where I'm like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> like, how did that? But no, I, I don't really get jealous when comedians get stuff. I do get jealous of people when their like station in life seems to be increasing and mine seems to be at a place of stagnation. Yeah. But it's not comedy specific. Gotcha. That makes sense. I don't think I, uh, well, I, I, I think part of the comedians getting upset about other comedians getting things, I will make this spin this into something spiritual in a second is this insane belief that this system is like fair or based on something that makes sense, you know, crazy. And it's like, have you watched television? It's awful. You know, it's like so-and-so sold their show and it's like, Okay. And they're like, they're not even funny. And it's like, have you watched TV? I'm sorry. Did you you think your great art from a nobody was going to like get you on? Have you seen television? Right. No, not even seen television. Just like, have you talked to your parents about what they think is funny? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Have you ever like sat around while your parents watched Big Bang Theory very loud on the television? It's (laughs) uh, not great out there. Well, yeah. And it's like, it's the, the whole idea of doing away with the carrot and stick motivators. Yeah. Where it's like, you're either chasing the carrot, which is getting the special, or you're getting the stick of not getting anything. And you're just caught in the middle of those two things as yep. a completely tortured animal. So like the way that you get out of that is just being intrinsically motivating and be like, ah, I'm just going to try and find whatever is the funniest thing that I can find and maybe people will like me for it and maybe they won't and that doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Yeah. I also think what people want is interesting. Um, In comedy, you watch a lot of like this, either like what they wanted when they were young or what they think Mm. is important but that line is constantly moving so you see people like chasing the late night set and i i don't know years ago that i i was living in delaware and i was like that seems like a dead end like what is that going to get you other than the clout of having a late night set to other comedians like uh it doesn't look like it leads to money it's a tv clean set so unless you're a tv clean comic if it got you fans which i don't think it does what are you going to do with those fans when they come and see what your actual comedy is? And also every comedian that uh, gets a late night set, the rest of you quietly bitch about how they're not funny. So it's not even like clout. Like what are, what are we chasing this for? Because it's been presented to us as something that we want, but like, what do you actually like? What kind of art do you want to create and then create that art and uh, now it's, you know, it's, they told you it's TV credits. Everybody clamored to get TV credits and they gave out 5,000 of them. And now it's like, how many followers do you have? Right. You know, so just go make your own shit. Fuck the gatekeepers. Right. But it, it, that's all that all comes from a detachment from like us and our inner selves. And right. it, it, it's it's a complete separation. And it, it, it's so that the reason why I love doing this is because it makes those little cracks in our armor so apparent. Yeah, because it, it's so intense when that happens. But yeah, it, you're you're just completely splitting off. And you're looking at other people and you're looking at 
the glitz and glamour of success. And it's almost like what you were talking about before, knowing the words of spirituality yeah. without actually having the practice. Seeing those late night sets and being like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Like, yeah, it's cool, but it, you're looking at the glitz and glamour of it and you're not looking at the meaning behind it, which is this is just supposed to be a representation that you've come to some sort of realization as a artist, as a comedian, whatever. You got something together and it's marketable and palatable and all that stuff that everybody thinks is good. And it, this is just a small representation of that. It doesn't mean that this is the only way that that is a reality. Right. Like, it, this isn't the only way that that success is a reality. But people look at it and we get confused. Like, it's the finger pointing to the moon and you're looking at the finger and not the moon. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Things I love about comedy. I hate it. Most of the time I'm trying to quit. But <laughs> comedy is a great place to learn manifestation of reality because you have you have something you're doing repeatedly and repeatedly for me, because I am the laziest comedian in the history of the world. I do like five shows a year, almost no shows. If I'm not on the road, like I'll do like two LA shows a month. And that's me like really, really cranking up my numbers. I'm glad you took our bar show as yeah. one of those shows. That one. Time. <laughs> uh, that was my favorite one. <laughs> and now I'm working on a special. So I'm actually like hammering trying down. or whatever I'm doing shows, but I um you couldn't say trying without rolling your eyes. Yeah, which is I know it's so hard. <laughs> but every time you go on stage, there's a new opportunity to play with attachment to outcome and manifestation and you know, um creating something from nothing. And you have you have a very, a lot of opportunity there. Uh so I like that about comedy. My favorite thing about comedy is seeing how sad I can be and still get away with it. Like that's it. Like that's it I haven't told a real joke and I don't know how every joke now is just like can, can people cry and laugh at the same time? You know, it's yeah. like the objective. But that's the fun thing. Like that's what I love the thing that I love about comedy, which maybe isn't even the best. Like I'm addicted to displays of charisma. Like, I just love watching a display of charisma and seeing people, and it, like, you look at them, you're like, that person figured out whatever the, like, charisma formula is, whether it's intentional or non-intentional, like, they did it. And in comedy, you see that manifest in so many different ways, where you'll see someone go on stage, no jokes, just completely sad, but somehow they can, like, capture an audience. Then you see somebody who just completely, like, walks on stage, big dicks the whole show, just yep. talks about how cool they are, and they get them too. And it's like such a fun that that's what kind of similar to what you were saying, where you can figure out so many different ways to get to the same thing, and it, it, that's kind of where the passion comes from. But yeah, it is also extremely depressing. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> it's like it's like it's other people. Crushing. It, it, I I always think of it like other people. They'll say like, "Oh yeah, I was pursuing this thing, and then I got to a point, and I looked down, and I saw that it was hollow." And it's like, yeah, comedy is just it's all hollow. Like you you see the hollowness the entire way. Yeah, that and is then, very true. I don't think there's anything else that you chase that delivers that many disappointments in rapid succession. Um, the thing that I don't. Um, resonate with envy is that i feel like envy in manifesting reality is really kind of claiming that there is a limited universe it's a sensation that we have that when someone else gets something that we wanted it means we can't have it right 
that it somehow has taken, that there's some finite, there's not even a finite amount of late night sets. There's how many fucking late night shows are there? And oh, they have episodes every night, you know? Infinite. And if you also count like a different streaming platforms or whatever, it, there's so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. But every time somebody else gets something, if we feel the crushing weight of, but I wanted that. How come I didn't get that? And then you start checking into this like, uh, that reality is somehow based on some value judgment or whatever, which brings us back to success in comedy is work. Like it, it is work. A lot of people who are mad about people not or other people getting late night sets. It's also like, have you submitted sure. a late night set? Have you? Do you have a tight five? You know. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of arbitrary jealousy. But I'm just using this as an example of many things where we, you know, we're like envious of of other people's things, and then it's like, well, do you want that? You know, it's also that's one of the tr biggest attachments from like true human nature, because the only way that you get something is by other people getting something because nothing yeah. happens in a vacuum. So whether it's like mostly people think of that as like, oh, well, when my friend gets something, yeah, I can get that because that benefits me and I have an attachment to them and they'll introduce me to all the people or whatever. But you have to think way bigger and broader than that and be like. No, the fact that anyone is getting this because everybody is interconnected in this way, if you can zoom out enough and you can have enough kind of whatever you want to call it, whether it's like uh, open-mindedness or whether you call it clairvoyance or whatever, but just seeing someone getting something and be like, this is good for everyone, even if yeah. I hate this person, it's yeah. still good because someone is getting this. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, other people getting things is a great way to find out what they did, yeah. you know, to learn from them, uh, getting away from late night sets before comedians think I'm attacking them, but just anything in life, finding out what they did to get it. And yeah, I don't, I feel like inspired when I see other people get things. I'm like, there's, there are podcasts making $150,000 a month and no part of me is like, fuck that. I'm like, okay, so that's possible. Yeah. Cool. Like, let me figure out how to do that because that, that, uh, that path has already been paved. Like that, that has already been brought into reality. So I don't even have to like imagine it out of nothing. You mm -hmm. know, it's already exists, which not that you can't create things that don't, already exist. I had a conversation with someone today about aging and, um, I, it's a, it's this other fucking trip, right? It was mm. like grew up in the nineties and, and programmed about like what age you're done or whatever. And, uh, in my thirties as my thirties were ticking by when I was watching TV, I would Wikipedia the age of all the actresses, you know, or all the, all the comedians and stuff. And to see if anybody broke out in their mid thirties, late thirties, oh, yeah. and nobody did. And then finally the aliens that I talked to all the time were like, but it's not exactly like your style to only take paths that other people have paved for you. That's one of the most pernicious things that I think everyone does is they they pick an arbitrary thing about them and they think is it can has someone else done what I want to do with this thing about me? And yeah. it's like even if the, even if that's not the case, that is one marker of so many other markers that really matter in the equation of something that, it, yeah, but that can really kind of stymie you. Not to say that, I mean, age has a huge thing to deal with, like, how, you know, whatever you call lower level people perceive of you or whatever. Yeah. 
but yeah that that's a huge one and that's a huge manifestation of insecurity is being like i need someone to validate me that i've never even met before yep to believe in myself when that belief is 100 percent internal yeah and also like i don't know what i was trying to participate in I guess I was like wanted to get picked up by a studio. I don't know what the fuck. Uh, comedy's great in that you can just create everything yourself. And yeah. no one gives a shit, by the way. Nobody gives a shit. If you, I, I do know stories of fantastic comedians getting dropped by their manager when they turned 30. But this was 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, when I had my first meeting with my manager, I was like, I'm 40. I don't know if that matters. And she's like, <laughs> it literally could not matter less. Nobody gives a fuck. You're funny. Oh, that rules. Yeah. And then it hasn't getting older, but it's interesting how much of that is just societal programming, right? There, there are like thoughts where I'm like, I'm not, I think I'm supposed to be having thoughts that are like, you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to do this. And then it's like, it's like a construct, like gender. You yeah. Know? It's like the, like barriers of consciousness where I think the, the narrowness uh, and, and it ebbs and flows too, which kind of sucks. Cause I hope that it's not going to come back to more barriers being put on. But like before there was one archetypal idea of this is what a family looks like. This is what a house yep. looks like. This is what success looks like. And then it slowly, started to break this is just the united states but like it slowly started to break apart break apart now we're in a place like you said where even gender is starting to get torn down and those structures of this is what you have to be as a man this is what you have to be as a woman obviously age is being torn down and it it does sort of beg the question like what is going to be the next step what's the next thing to kind of get broken up and expanded upon yeah which i hope i hope it, it is age because that would be nice not having to deal with that i think i might end up being one of the uh preachers of the the age redefinition but mm. it's something i've been thinking a lot lately because there's the physical thing i guess i don't know i didn't really age until i started doing dumb shit that people told me i was supposed to be doing to not age i yeah. like washed my face with bar soap and use Lubriderm lotion until I was like 38 or 39. I'm still on that kick. Yeah. I'm still going strong. I'm going back. And then <laughs> I had like zero like wrinkles or anything. And then they're like, you got to get this thing with needles popped in your face. And I was like, all right. And then I got like hyperpigmentation from it. And I was like, oh, this is why y'all age so fast. It's because you people start this shit at 30. At 30 when people were like, you're eight. I'm like, what? I just got started. I just quit meth. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you're saying this while they're doing the thing on your yeah, face. You're like, I'm like, all right, this is going to be half off and you're yeah. done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually not afraid of needles. This is not my first rodeo. I never had them in my face before. Something I thought about today is I think everything's up for like reevaluation. I think, and I hope that we're moving into this higher consciousness reality where this is why we're just wiping all this, all these rules out. But I was thinking earlier how weird it is that it's embarrassing if someone was your boy. I noticed that somebody deleted all the posts about their ex off of mm -hmm. Instagram. And I think it's weird. I mean, I get it if you hate them or what. I also think that's weird. I think, I think it's weird to hate your exes, even though I get that it's difficult and you have to like separate and stuff. It's weird that you loved someone and now you, you can't find any love for them, but you know, whatever I get it. I kind of don't like my ex-husband, but, um, <laughs> 
I think it's weird that we shame people for having short relationships. Why is it, uh, you know, when people are like, oh, she just announced that this person's her boyfriend, but this other, she had this boyfriend, you know, nine months ago. So somebody plays the role. There's a different role, a boyfriend and a, a fuck boy. Not really in 2019. Sure. Uh, but those are different. Posi- like what's, why can't we just like have that be, we're boyfriend and girlfriend right now. Uh, who knows who the fuck we're going to be in nine months. We're all changing pretty fast right now. You know, who knows where life will take us. This isn't like me signing my life away or you signing your life away. I'm going to be your boyfriend, uh, or girlfriend for as long as that feels good. And then when it doesn't, we're going to separate, but it doesn't need to be this giant shameful disaster at the end. Uh, who cares if people have a boyfriend for six months and then it, and then it, you know, they're done. They've just like finished, you know, I, I think that's all kind of imposing structures onto things that they don't make sense on. Like if somebody has the, whatever kind of like background and, and upbringing that, leads to someone wanting that sort of thing where it's like i'll date this person for a little the bad like word for that which i don't know the positive side of this would be serial monogamy yeah just like a positive version of serial monogamy where you're not fucking anyone over and everybody understands that it's temporary or whatever yeah people would look at that and they would be like oh what what are they doing they're taking someone new home for christmas every year like what's going on yeah where yeah i think that that's just sort of I think that is maybe changing, but that's kind of the last frontier of like the expansion of what relationships are and can be because you're not just involving yourself. You're also involving like your family and people around you. If you're like full on dating this person, yeah, which is, I think still like I I have friends where I would be totally cool with that. The only issue is if you're involving people who aren't on your same mental level that's where it gets tricky. I think that's where the Instagram thing comes in because if you're putting someone on your Instagram, you're getting other people invested in it, right? Like yeah. you're 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 gonna get those like good for you and like hell yeah, you're gonna get those DMs of your friends like I'm so glad you guys are happy, blah blah blah. And then you guys break up and you know that it's something where it's like oh yeah, well I don't see dating as this static thing that has to last forever. But all those other people who are on a different kind of wavelength when it comes to relationships are all gonna be like what the fuck like you were dating that we were happy for you yeah no that's i think that's the conversation that needs to change i think because we do still have we're getting away from like marriage or like mm -hmm. relationships just aren't relationships are a place to learn about yourself right now anyway and we're all learning intimacy i don't think intimacy ever actually existed like true interdependent healthy intimacy i think people got married to survive Mm -hmm. i think you know we used to we talk about staying together as if that's a virtue. And it's like, well, how long ago did you fall out of love? And I don't mean like getting swept up in whatever, you know, of course it runs its course, but I think most relationships run their course. I don't think our generations and younger are going to marry someone and stay with them their entire life. We evolve so fast. Mm. What are the fucking odds that you and that person are still compatible in five, 10, 20 years? You know, it's a real shame. And the reason why I kind of feel, cause I've been a victim to this too, where a relationship sort of completely with someone that you like, like you like them regardless of whether it's a relationship or whatever, you just think they're cool, but it, inevitably implodes because that's the nature of relationships like a hundred percent in hundred percent out either 
it's like you're with them forever or you hate them. Like that's the yep. kind of structure that we're given. And yeah, it, it fuck it's such a narrowing thing. And I think people had to have that at a certain point in time. To survive, you mean? To survive, not just to survive like physically, but also to survive mentally. Because if you're in a smaller group of people with so many less options and stuff, then if you break up with someone, that could be it for you. Like, you could be done forever because there's, like, three women in your group or right, whatever. Right, yeah. But, yeah, I, I definitely think that it, it's like an expansion in the same way that technology is moving way faster than the human body is. I think society is also moving way faster than the human body is. So we have all these external comforts, and clearly a lot of people would be fine not doing one-on-one -on -one monogamy to survive or what, and to get three kids to work on their farm or whatever. But <laughs> those... <laughs> Which would still rule. Let me just say that. That would still be real nice. I would like that set up in the future. But yeah, no, I, I think that like it's just we, our society hasn't really caught up with our technology. And yeah. that's all it is. Yeah. I just think that that would be, might be a good conversation to change. And I think we are. I think we are. Like I follow the angry therapist and the holistic psychologist. And they're talking a lot about trauma bonds uh, because I've thought a lot about is chemistry just this person is perfectly wired to wreck me? Is it like, you know what I mean? Is that what you feel that chemistry between two people? Those, those kind of, cause there's something about chemistry and utter instability in a relationship that seem to correspond. You know, Absolutely. you see like people who get into relationships and those relationships last when you ask them to describe the beginning they describe something that's kind of easy. They often are like, you know, we knew we liked each other, but it was like, you know, uh, I wasn't sure, you know, right. because they are those heavy chemistry at the beginning are kind of like, I think they are some type of karmic connection, but they are a uh, kind of the horn in one person's head matches the hole in the other person. Like they're yeah. your perfect mirror of your trauma. And so there is something exciting. Like the sex is going to be really good, but sure. I'm definitely blocking you at the end of this. <laughs> um, so I think a big part of our evolution as into becoming one consciousness again has to be built around love and intimacy. We have to figure that out because like we have to try to connect into one like unified field again. Right. The kind of neutralizing the explosive, like explosivity of two people coming together. Because yeah. Those little explosions rather than just being between two people, when you like zoom out and you look at the effects on the entirety of humanity, it's like, those are, two beings that should be finding a way to interconnect but instead through this fat thing which is like a relationship they're actually blowing it apart yeah it's interesting yeah no that's a really good point yeah i think um my theory is is that if we were one ball of light at some point and uh, do you know ramin nazar no. Okay. Uh, we had this conversation once where, because to me it feels like this big mission that we're coming back into one consciousness and we get to experience all this magic as we come back into one consciousness. And he's like, yeah, but you know, we're immediately going to blow apart again because mm -hmm. that's all we do. But when a cell divides, it goes like two pieces, four pieces, you know, eight pieces, 16 pieces, and it splits up like that. And I think there's a possibility that we come back together very similarly, that two people who are in complete non-resonance with each other can't just come back. Like there are no jump cuts. You can't just come back into one consciousness. You have to find somebody who's pretty close 
to you in you know vibrational frequency and try to figure that out. But here you have two pieces of one consciousness that have lived thousands of years and thousands of lifetimes separate. So they have all these defense mechanisms and ways of protecting themselves and and you know uh, intimacy issues and codependency issues, which I feel like. Uh, you know, fear of intimacy is like running away from the connection, uh, codependency being like attack, like running into the connection too fast. You have to be able to figure out how to just like resonate next to each other without interfering with each mm. other with while respecting boundaries. I think that's why boundaries is such a huge thing. I feel like the last two years really like tore down our walls. And now we're learning how to have boundaries instead and like use words and instead of manipulating and, and then if we can master that with one other person and then we can start to expand it. And then I, I feel like that's maybe why I don't like the love and light crew or why, you know, why there still feels like there's an us versus them, even though I know that there isn't, you know, yeah. is because they are, you know, we'll connect to them in fucking, you know, a few more connections. But like, we just got to figure out how to get along with one person without eating them alive or running away from them. And I feel like that's why so many people are experiencing this desire for intimacy, but complete inability to experience it. That's interesting to use the word desire, because I think that that's the biggest hurdle to overcome when it comes to bridging the gap between having two people that are able to come together without being codependent and without having to run away. Because we all have these internalized desires for relationships to happen and this is such like a cliche that people say all the time but if you like really really want it it's never gonna happen you're yeah. holding the bird too tight you it, it's gonna like it's killing you you also like can't have the desire for complete independence when you're in a relationship there's gonna have to be well, it, it's funny because it is an independence, but not in the way that we're used to with just being by ourselves. Yeah. It's like a kind of a you have to find a new definition of independence where you're constantly choosing over and over again to be with this person. Yeah. And that's so hard, but and it, but it's desireless because it's not like, oh, I have to be with this person because if I'm not with them, I won't feel good about myself. Right. You know? Because that, that's where desire comes from. It's this idea that something, some external force will satiate this itching within us. Yeah. Where it's like, no, you can get, you have to, it's a prerequisite to get rid of that itching before you can be in a truly healthy relationship with someone. Yeah, like, in, I like the word interdependence. I'm not sure how many of us have ever seen this kind of relationship, but like some of the, the 5D downloads I've gotten are about uh, getting into this nine of pentacles energy first, which is just complete independence, but like learning how to be completely independent, creating your own self-worth, creating your own self-esteem, your own energy, uh, learning how to do all of these things for yourself. And then someone else comes along who's also done that. And then you're learning how to do it in proximity with each other without taking, but just sharing Something interesting because I don't, I like, I'd like to be alone. So I don't feel, and I don't just have, you know, I know people that I would have considered codependent and they'll, like, anybody will do. And I'm not like, like that at all. Sure. It's just like rare that someone comes along that I'm like, oh shit. But um, something that I do once I start to get vulnerable, if I get the slightest bit vulnerable with somebody, I just put them on a pedestal. I think I need to believe that whoever I have feelings for is the most amazing person in the world. So I just put them on this insane 
pedestal and then I just write part of this is just the fucking poet in me but like I just write these beautiful stories about them and I pay zero attention to faults which I do think is a positive quality in me I don't pay attention to people's faults really anyway unless I you know I'm like making fun of Teal Swan on a podcast but (laughs) I uh if I'm a partner with someone I pay no attention to faults and it's just I'm this a hundred percent yeah does it affect your self-esteem do you feel like the effect that it has on your self-worth I feel it turns into I've just tuned into this but it I did it to somebody recently Mm. where I just was like watching them make art and then I caught my, just the begin. I was like, ooh, why did that make me feel like shit? And yeah. it was because I was like, well, you're going up here on this pedestal way above me. And uh, I caught it and changed it. It can be, I think it can be almost even deeper than self-worth where it, it can affect your perception of like humanity when you do some, like when you put someone up to that level. Because what you're essentially doing is you're saying, no, this is the person who falls outside the bounds of normal humanity. Like, sure, everybody yeah. else is like an eating, shitting, burping human being, but this person is actually d- different. This is like my savior right here. This is going to be my escape from humanity through watching their example that they set as being this like demigod. And then as that unravels and as that inevitably completely explodes yeah <laughs> you look around and you're you're like fuck no one can do like no one's ever. worthy yeah. yeah no one's ever gonna uh even come out even come close to getting out of the like muck of human existence that i because i put this person as my kind of like cheerleader for that and look what that happened like yeah it, it's a complete recipe for chaos you do it also i have yeah i had i've had like quick move-ins with people that uh were not the smartest idea yeah and uh yeah i definitely fell into that and i also going back to your case it, it definitely hurts when when you do that and then you have to start convincing yourself oh this might not be the person because you're like man finding a new apartment's tough too yeah. you know <laughs> like <laughs> This is all tough. I have a tendency. Um, I've been in love three times and then had a 10 year marriage. And uh, that one, that experience was different. But the three times I've been in love, I knew almost immediately. The first, the, my first husband, I met him, I was 15. Mm-hmm. And I went home and said, I'm going to marry him. Whoa. And I had married him within eight months. The second time I fell in love, I met him. Uh, during a drug deal, as you do. Oh, yeah. And he was being a twerpy little shit. And I had sunglasses on. And I was like, this one's kind of wild. Because I was, I believed myself to be Osiris. And um, I was waiting for ISIS to show up in July. And it was July 31st. And there was a magazine on the um, desk. And I had just had gotten messages that ISIS was coming. Uh, that meant something different in yeah, 2001, yeah. by the way. And, CIA uh, listening, yeah. she's not saying she had previous information. <laughs> and so he was being a, an asshole, and I was like, uh, I didn't like him. We were arguing, but there was some chemistry there, and I was like, why do I feel weird? when I? And also, I'm like, 
he wasn't my type at all. But I was like, why do I feel weird? And yeah. he said, uh, I know who you are. I've been able to talk to beings and make them do what I want since I was a kid. And I was like, take off your sunglasses. And he took off his sunglasses and I looked at his eyes and the eyes on the magazine. And I was like, you're my boyfriend now. You live here. And he was. He was my boyfriend for three years after that. <laughs> the guy I married, we were together for five years. Uh, and then this uh, last time I fell in love, he didn't really go for my codependent bullshit. So it was only a couple of years. But yeah, sure. for the most part, I know. Uh, I, I don't, I've never really had it like fizzle. <laughs> it, it, mm. Flames is, uh, is my preferred method. No sure. Fizzling. No fizzling for me. Who needs ice cubes? I put people on a pedestal and then I don't, um, even in the marriage, just like put them on a pedestal. And I'm trying to figure out what that is. It's something pinged when you said, save me. Mm. Uh, or savior because I did feel like I remembered uh, kind of like in the ether begging the last person to save me at one point. Well, we're given this horrible like where where I grew up in Cape Cod, like it, such a working class mentality, and the way men talk about their wives is so crazy because it's either like horribly negative like they're either like oh, i have to fucking go home to oh i can't believe that she's gonna tell me to not go out or it's these like man I'd, i'll tell you what she's uh she's both parts to this whole like yeah this, yeah just these insane <laughs> like oh man she's mysterious but she's everything that i had and it's it's these weird sort of dichotomous things where it's like either your wife is this complete anchor to your existence or you hold her up to this place where it's like oh i'm a dog and she's this incredible angel and what would i ever be without her and it's like neither of those are healthy yeah you shouldn't i mean like i get how that's like a cute thing to say and it's like oh it's like you're in married with children or whatever yeah but i i really think that those are bad ideas to reinforce because both of those dehumanize a person yeah that's a good point there were a lot of like posts about me that i used to think were like great when i was married and now they they make me cringe this is like my worth was being like uh narrowed down to what i cooked for dinner you know or whatever right. that night but um i w we are we glamorize codependency and dysfunctional relationships so much like in crazy. this society like all of the songs like i listen to songs now i'm like this is so fucking codependent this is like gross and all these movies all these love stories where the man is avoidant and the woman is anxious uh preoccupied which i didn't know what any of this shit meant until last year and then the, the avoidant man always comes back and that just like supports this fantasy that if you just love him long enough, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or just yeah. like pretend to leave, then he'll come back. And it's like, none of that's good. How about two people that just get together and it's chill and yeah. then the world doesn't end if they stop resonating. You know, I've like read something about some alien civilization where they get, you know, time doesn't exist and they don't age, but they get together for like 200 years and they just get together easy. You know, getting together with someone is a fucking nightmare for me. It's like, well, I'm going oh, yeah. to get weird and all these cool things that you like about me, they go out the window oh, because right I'm not even remotely, I don't know how to let you near me without losing my mind. And then they just do, they just like let it run its course because relationships have a cool course if you let them run. Some people are just, 
match and they just match forever. But I feel like that is the exception to the rule and not the rule. But yet we keep chasing this, right? And we put so much pressure on it that people are afraid. Like, what if you could just be like, oh, this is cool. Let's be in a relationship. And there wasn't the pressure of forever. Would we be commitment phobics if we didn't have this like idea that if it doesn't work, it's a mistake? but rather like they connect and then they're together for a couple hundred years, which does sound like a commitment here where we have linear time. Mm -hmm. And then when it's done, they just do their own thing. They just separate and go get into another relationship because they don't have to process all this nightmare of trying to stay together after something has come out of resonance. They just connect. It's all like messaging that is completely i think discordant to what our natural states are and that's why those sorts of relationship where both people are like we gotta do this forever like it's gotta last forever any deviation from that is this unholy ungodly awful thing yep is completely against the not to say those people don't exist and that's their nature sure that might be some people's programming but to make that the norm is like re- I think really harmful. First of all, because you you make these people who deviate from that either completely outcasts, or you talk like shit about them behind their backs or whatever, or you make them like these archetypes of like, oh, this person's just a weirdo out on their own doing their own thing. We don't even have to pay attention to them. It's like I don't know. Yeah, I, I think. As more you talk to people, the more you learn about those sorts of things, you start to realize, like, man, nothing is good. Yeah, <laughs> none of it's good. So why why pick the boring way? Yeah, if none of it's good. Yeah. why pick the dumb, boring? Like, oh man, I'm gonna be miserable. Like, because I really tried for a while to like mimic true, pure monogamy, where I even tried to control my thoughts. I I was literally oh, at a point literally at a point where I was like completely bought into the idea of if I think of other people or if I talk to another person I know it's in a flirtatious way even if it wouldn't be read like that from an external point of view I'm doing wrong and I have to stop that. Jeez. Yeah, and that was like it was a good experience because now I know what it feels like to be like that. Yeah. It's just not good. Not natural, no. Not natural. I have a weird relationship with monogamy where uh, it takes me forever to uh, have sex. I pretty much can't have mm-hmm. sex if I'm like not, if I don't have feelings. It's too much like trauma we got to tread through to get there. They're just going to stop there. Like, I pretty much can't have sex. Yeah. And I was going to be like, that is the dream. Yeah. That's I have, great. yeah, I have a lot of like hooking up. Uh, a lot is a mm. huge exaggeration. I can hook up, like I can make out or sure. whatever, but I like me being touched. It's like a nightmare you got to get through. And then, <laughs> and then I have this irrational fear of sex being bad. Mm-hmm. It feels like the awkward interaction if the sex was bad and I'm going to have to pretend like it was good. That's how it manifests in my head is that I just have to avoid that. You know, it's going to be bad. It's going to be, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be terrible. And then you're going to have to pretend it was good and, and fake an orgasm. So then it, that's like, that's the um, anxiety that happens. And then if I do have sex with somebody, I'm grossed out by them and I never want to see them again. So that's, uh, that's natural. Yeah. yeah. That's the way. Listen. <laughs> well, cause then it's bad. Well, that is bad. well, listen, first off, if you have merch, I just please put on it. When you touch me, it's a nightmare. That's, that's beautiful. But, um, 
But no, I mean that's not to go all the way full circle with uh with Tantra, but like that was one of the ideas of Tantra where it's like you can't come because once you come you hate the person. Really? Yeah, that's one of the big reasons why they're like you shouldn't come because or you only come for the reason of procreation is because like once you orgasm, which is I mean there's some sort of like endorphin response or whatever. But I think that what happens is it completely breaks, which uh, I think a lot of people would agree with this, is it completely breaks down the wall for just a f- those few minutes after. It breaks down the wall of whatever w- was attaching you to this person that was related to your desires and not to your inner being. Right. So for those few seconds, that's why, that, like, a lot of, I, I mean, this is really prevalent in, like, male circles where it's, like, you come and then you go, like, Oh fuck! What did I do this for? Yeah. Like, why was well? It's because you were one hundred percent being driven by like desire with that one. But I think I think it's kind of nice because you get to kind of peek over the curtain for those couple of minutes and be like, "Oh, this is what this was for." Like, yeah. Oh, this was the real reason for this. I I'm dumb and I shouldn't have done this but, for some of them. But I've also had the experience of doing that and then being like, "Oh, this still feels good." Yeah. It's still nice. Yeah. Then my pendulum swings the other way, and I'm afraid of, uh, if it's good, I'm going <laughs> to fall in love, you know? So uh, I'm fun to date. Nice. Um, what was I going to say about sex is a minefield? Uh, if you touch me, I hate you. I mean, those are the most of the uh, bases. But I do, I think a lot about se- how much of sex, my issues with sex are trauma and how many of my issues with sex are that maybe the way we do it is weird uh, because I do like a good energy exchange. Sure. And I think um, I'm very tuned into the type of energy exchanges that everything is. And so uh, something about just slapping bodies into each other gets very abstract and weird for me. Going to a bar and finding another drunk person and yeah. then coming home and having like no connection, but just need to slam your body into them until you come like that grosses me out so bad. A really fun way to like circumvent that and look at it in a different way for me was in, in these uh, the, the one book which I was not a huge fan of was like the ethical slut where it was like, ah, eh, this is kind I of did read that. Yeah, yeah it kind of like there were parts of it where I was like, whatever. The one part that I kind of liked about that was the idea that everything is sex. It's not just like penetration. Yeah, it's like a conversation, certain kinds of eye contact, like all of that counts towards whatever sex is. But there are two other books written by the same authors. I think it's by the same authors. It's called the New Topping Book and the New Bottoming Book. And it's about this sort of idea, not not just about like the text of it where it literally gives like a list of these are the rules of engagement when it comes to those sorts of things. But it has this overarching theme where sex isn't this super narrow thing we've put it as where it's like penetration is sex, non-penetration. You can be one of the three bases, anything other than that. It's garbage. Like, yeah. get rid of it. It's, it doesn't matter. Where it's like, no, any sort of, like you said, energy exchange it doesn't have to be like sex to be sexual. And I think that that's like a huge distinction that I think would alleviate a lot of stress. Cause I think like a lot of young men are under the assumption, older men also, there's all men, all well, old men are also young men for the most part. Yeah. If you know what I mean. But it's like, 
they they have this idea where if you're not having penetrative sex with someone, then it doesn't count, and you're not like an established human being because of it. Yeah. And then as a woman, it's the opposite. Like the story you're told is like if if you let enough people do that to you, then you're not worthy or whatever. Yep. And it's like. No, both of those things are wrong and they have to shift where it's like if you're a guy and you're not having penetrative sex with a bunch of people, if you're having positive energy exchanges with women, you, you can, it's you're doing good. Yeah. Like things are good and you don't have to measure yourself. Like everybody who calls themselves like an incel online, it, it's because they have this idea where it's like if you're not doing that then there's no other way that you can achieve any sort of gratification. Right. It's a complete lie. Yeah. That and that's where it gets like the objective being that, yeah, is where it gets very abstract to yeah. me rather than uh, something to do with like connection and an energy exchange where it's just slamming your body into someone else's body until he and probably not she come. <laughs> well, if you're using the word slamming, a hundred percent not she, yeah, yeah, no, no, slamming, slamming is never. The way. <laughs> We'll wrap up in a second. What I was going to say was about monogamy, my views on monogamy. Here's where more stuff where societal programming comes in. So I'm pretty monogamous. I also, because I'm so busy building pedestals, uh, once I'm attracted to one person, nobody else exists. I'm very monogamous uh, myself. That's okay. Hold on. Once I have put a man, I'm attracted to a man, no other men exist. Women always exist. But I... And pretty focused on, you know, one relationship. I also don't have a ton of mental space to feel insecure about more than one person. <laughs> that said, and this is philosophically and does not work if my attachment system is fucked up. The philosophically, uh, I don't really agree with monogamy as a construct. Like I don't, I see non-monogamy done poorly a lot. And I don't think if I was in like a committed, like live together relationship, I'd want it to be some massive uh, focus in the relationship is building other relationships or fucking other people. But like this idea that uh, we're together and I own your body. And if you fuck someone else, it's a betrayal of me. Feels like I'm trying to prevent you from leaving by eliminating competition, which feels like false security. Mm. Because in reality, you could meet someone at a grocery store and fall in love in, in 30 seconds. And I, I can't prevent that. Right. right. So monogamy, because two people are like me and just aren't interested in other people like that makes sense. Right. But that's not really like a rule. So I am kind of open to the idea of and this would uh, be, have to be after my attachment system has been dealt with. But I'm open to the idea of being in a non-monogamous relationship that just kind of leaves it like, I don't know if the opportunity arises or whatever, it's not a betrayal of me. I don't necessarily want to be in a partnership with someone who's like pussy hunting. Constantly. You sure. know what I mean? You've, you've met these like non-monogamous people that it's like, why don't you just be single? Like, is this a full-time fucking 100%. job? Is yeah. hunting other, you know what I mean? Get off the apps, which like to each their own. I know that's a whole kink for some people and definitely like spicing up a marriage. I get it. 
But um, but I'm pretty open to the idea of just like monogamy seems unnecessary and just like here's a potential for, I don't know, you're attracted to someone. It feels more, I feel like being attracted to other people's fine. And uh, if you got an opportunity and, you know, and then it was it was pitted up against your relationship with me, it feels more like that would chip away at your relationship with me rather than just have the experience, you know. I think polyamory, like like love relationships, still makes me a little bit nervous. I've just seen it not yeah. done really well. But I'm also like, I was trying to go balls out this idea of polyamory. I do think maybe we end up there one day, but I'm now hyper aware of the fact that I have an anxious attachment system and that I feel like I'm not very threatened by sex. I feel like there are a lot of amazing bodies out there, you know? Sure. And none of them are mine and um you know i would i would hate to uh to deprive somebody of getting to look at you know boobs one of the other ones <laughs> yeah but um you know getting to look at a body that hasn't bore three children but like i also wouldn't be uh not monogamous like but you try to float that idea to somebody and be like i think i could deal with my partner fucking other people but i wouldn't and then all this stuff comes up like that's not even that's not fair yeah well there there's my my theory on all this and why it's like a structure that seems to not really work and when it does work it's seen as being in the minority is because when you have a society like ours where there's still a huge core of people that are in this like center like this kind of normie center and all of them have the programming of monogamy like or they have the programming where the ideal is following monogamy yeah the problem is the people who are going to deviate from that aren't going to be the people in the center it's going to be the people in the fringes who have all this other extra stuff yeah. in general <laughs> yeah. that's why you kind of stand out because you have a pretty stable core and you're also open to these ideas and i think that that's not the case for most people who are on the fringes who are practicing this i think that once people towards the center start kind of breaking up breaking this down and moving away from that sort of program i think that's when you're going to see it working more yeah because those are the people who have the financial stability the job stability all the sort of things that we see as being necessary prerequisites to healthy relationships yeah I think that's a good point. I think these are all conversations that we are changing and like new new systems and new constructs that we are creating as these old ones are being torn down. Um, and I think that the relationship paradigm, it's just never been good. You know, I can only speak for America because this is the society I've been exposed to. But it's yeah, like, we gla- you got people glamorizing family values. Family va- Are you talking about like the 50s and 60s when men were cheating on their wives like crazy and oh, their yeah. wives were at home popping pills because they hated their fucking life so much but they were trapped at home? Is that the family values that we're talking about? Christianity? Everybody being trapped in a fucking religion uh, that exploited their desire to connect to their higher self and, and connected normal uh, human things to shame so that they could be fragmented off from themselves. And then you got like our parents' generation or my parents' generation that was like, you know, we can get divorced. But then they were so fucking bad at divorce. Like, holy shit. Talk shit about your other parent. Oh, yeah. Fucking bad. 
And then now everybody, you know, the people want, they're like, I don't know how to fucking connect to another person. It's scary. And so then we're like, you know, we're figuring it out here. And I think that in the next few years, this is what we figure out. And we figure out like, what are these rules exist for? And that's my biggest challenge for monogamy. I am monogamous by nature, just kind of out of disinterest. And also I spend most of my time trying to figure out how to overthrow the government and like how to climb to higher levels. I don't have a shit ton of time to think about relationships. To go to the bars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, if I found a dick, you know, I don't need sure. many of them. But I don't necessarily like, I don't know. I don't have that now codependently activated all of this. this some of this is philosophical and doesn't necessarily line up with the attachments. I would have to feel safe in the relationship first. But um, I'm like, what is this rule for? You know, when you talk to people, you ask people why they're monogamous, the answers are kind of gross. You know, oh, yeah. it's like, well, that's mine. And it's like, yeah, you know? 100%. I wouldn't want anyone to talk about me like that. I don't belong to you. you yeah. Know? And I would have to have the option. I would have to be open to the option, but I would also have to be honest with myself in that uh, I'm probably not going to take that opportunity at least with another guy you know right I'm probably not gonna do that i don't have a ton of like uh crazy spontaneous sexual chemistry <laughs> but if some guy comes up to you in a bar and he's like hey i have a briefcase full of cia documents yeah you're going oh, with fuck. Him. i'm blowing you're- him at the very <laughs> minimum just out of gratitude mm-hmm. just sheer uh gratitude sheer elation uh this was fantastic was great um where can people find you uh, Instagram's the best place, uh, at not bad Dan, N O T B A D D A N. Uh, can I tell you? I, uh, never mind. I'm not going to tell you. I was going to tell you how I ended up following you on Instagram, but, um, <laughs> it's, uh, after this conversation, Off not mic? a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> If you want a reading, jessareed.com. I have blocked off part of December while I figure out what I'm doing with my life, but it will be open up in a, opened up in a little bit. Jessa Reed Comedy on Twitter and Instagram. Follow this podcast at Soberish Pod on Instagram. You can follow it on Twitter for no reason. <laughs> I barely post anything. Brian, if you're listening to this, I'm still mad at you. Uh, we will see you next I'm week. I'm with you, Brian. Get laid, buddy. 